Is there a library or bookstore around here where I could get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. This story's true. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Hello, everybody. I'm Christian Swain, and welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me today, as always, is Shelly Sorensen from the San Francisco Public Library. Shelly, how you doing? I'm doing real good, Christian. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. What's been going on? It's been so long since we've been together. We've been uh, busy and uh, running around. Some people and... have been taking vacations. <laughs> yeah, the whole team. So if you're wondering where episode 10 is, just know that uh, we, uh, we're we working on it and it's going to be a great episode, but it's uh, it's slow in coming because of a lot of vacations and uh, that's been for everybody. So That's right. And you know, good things come to those who wait. I certainly hope that is going to be the case. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. So uh, we have another book for everybody to listen to. What do we got this week? We have a book called Delta Lady by Rita Coolidge. Outside the rain begins And it may never end So cry no more On the shore a dream Will take us out to sea It's a memoir that she wrote about her life. And the reason she wrote it is that so many people have asked her about her life and relationships she's had with various musicians and people in the music business that she felt it was time to set the story straight. Oh, yes. The old set the record straight right. uh, concept on how to sell a book. Well, that's uh, that's good. And let's get right into it. So uh, tell me a little bit about Miss Coolidge. All right. Well, I mean, I want to say right up front, that I know not many people think of Rita Coolidge as being kind of a rock and roll type of musician. But well, uh, my first thought is that, but at the same time, I, I know she has been associated with some amazing acts through the years. So she definitely fits the mold, but I, I think maybe her solo career is not really thought of as quote unquote rock and roll. Yeah, I think you're right. She wants to tell, you know, the story of her relationships with musicians and but what I thought was really interesting about the book was that she herself had a real place and contribution to the world of rock and roll, not just as a muse or as a girlfriend or old lady of some rock musicians. But oh, you she, mean like that other book we yes, uh, the we, other we, book we yeah, we reviewed. Okay, yeah, well. But she was, you know, a gr she's got a beautiful, beautiful voice. Oh, very soulful. Yeah. It's it's gorgeous. And she made many contributions to backup vocals on some, you know, some of the most wonderful recordings you've ever heard. And she also contributed to the composition of other really cool songs. And, and then I believe she had there's a some controversy career. to some of that, there too. There is. We'll get into that, okay. Christian. All right. All right. So, so let's find out where did uh, Miss Coolidge start her life? Well, she was born in 1945 into a family of musicians, and her father was a preacher. Her father was 
Cherokee and her mom, Cherokee Scottish, and she had two sisters and they had a wonderful family life, which is not what you hear about uh, about a lot of musicians. Uh, she yeah, grew she, up she in, definitely looks Native American. Yeah, yeah she's definitely m- mostly Cherokee, born in Lafayette, Tennessee, and then they moved ah. to Nashville. Oh, well, that's one a good that, place to go if you're going to be a singer. Yeah, and then one thing that she said was that I thought was interesting that, you know, that area of the South was... Um, well, certain towns, I suppose, were mostly white. And her father, you know, moved his family in and he was, you know, they were the darkest people in town, basically. Um, But he was quite a cool preacher and he was a protector and fighter for black rights. And so the whole family really absorbed that feeling uh, for civil rights. And was he a Baptist preacher? Uh, I believe so. Uh, yeah, I don't know so, what well, denomination. Then, you know, it would play into that very lively uh, Baptist background of uh, music in the church and, yes. uh, and, and all that. So. She said her sisters and she sang, you know, regularly in the house, like her mother would pull them together and play the piano and they would work on harmonies. So she had that. Kind yeah, of. the gospel influence is a, a very constant in our uh, our wonderful world of rock and roll, especially American rock and roll. Totally. It's one of the best parts of it, I think. All right. Uh, so they moved to Memphis. Oh, okay. Um, From yeah. Nashville and Memphis. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, no, wait. First, Street. I'm right. sorry. First, she went to Florida State, you know, for her school and kind of she joined a sorority, but quickly went the hippie way and, you know, did the folk folk singer kind of thing and, you know, hung out with her guitar. And Okay, so went, the family didn't move to No, Memphis. I'm sorry. Okay, so she went to college in yeah. Florida, Florida State. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, basically realized that the educational uh, path was not uh, her forte and she really probably wanted to be a singer and uh, left and moved to Memphis. She did. She did finish college. Um, She thought she was going to maybe teach, but she moved to Memphis and got into the music scene. Of course, Memphis was more influential for black music than the kind of music she was used to singing because that was mostly folk music. But she became friends with somebody named Don Nick who was one of the architects on Stax Volt, um, oh, Stax which Records. is a big, big label. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, they produced Sam and Dave, Al oh, Green, oh, yeah. Otis Redding, Wilson yeah. Pickett. Yeah, um, we, we haven't got the Stax in no. our... Uh, our main narrative, but uh, they they are on the list. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, we are going to get to those boys. Good for boys. your deeper digs. I have a good book for you about stacks. Oh. I do. All right. All right. So Don Nix was in a group called the Marquis, which later became Booker T and the MGs. So oh, remember well, that. Oh, there's the stacks. Yeah, That's the house right. band. Remember yeah. that, the house band for stacks, because they play very prominently in her story. Okay. So she met, you know, like I said, that there was mostly a black music scene Mm -hmm. like Motown, but more driving and Southern tinged. Oh, yeah. 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 Then they had more multiracial bands. So Booker T and the MGs, for example. Not so poppy. That's right. They had Booker T, who was black, Mm -hmm. and Al Jackson Jr., the drummer, uh, was black. And also and then Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper. Yeah, uh, white. we're white. Yeah. So that was a really cool, I mean, just. Oh, that's the shit, man. Magical oh, way yeah. for her to get introduced to music. Yeah. Yeah. You're going right to the head of the class here. Yeah. So um, she quickly got really into that scene. She had a relationship with somebody I don't recognize called Maybon Teeny Hodges, but he, 
No, I don't recognize Yeah, either. he was a guitarist on a lot of the hits, and, a, and he co-wrote. I guarantee you somebody out there is going, do you guys don't know Teeny? Teeny! Teeny was big. Mm. They became friends and lovers, uh-huh. and he took her to places that other white people didn't get to go, and so she, Lucky you know, kind of, you know, because she was brown, I guess. I mean, you know, she got accepted more because she was with Teeny and because she thought that she was kind of accepted because she was Indian and she, you know, wasn't mainstream. Yeah. 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 Um, I could see that. Yeah. All right. So uh, she felt like she wasn't getting a break with the labels, you know, being a folk singer and everything. So and also her sister Priscilla, who is also an accomplished singer, met Booker T. Jones and they got married. And after they got married, the clan burned a cross on her parents' lawn in Memphis. <sighs> Jesus. And um, that and King's assassination really soured her family on oh, the so south. So this is 1968. Yeah, eventually then. they moved to L.A. Mm, <laughs> they couldn't yeah. take it anymore. But she did record her first single in Memphis. It was called Turn Around and Love You. All right. Well, let's play a little of Turn Around and Love You. Okay, so that was her first single, Turn Around and Love You. Uh, And that was recorded in Memphis, right? That's right. All right, but you said her family moved to L.A. They did. I don't know exactly if they moved to L.A. exactly when she did, but around the same time. Oh, so she did not record this in L.A. Okay, interesting. Uh, Wow, that's near the end of the Great Migration. Uh, That's something that we're very interested in and going to talk about in episode 10. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's um, not going too much into it and go off the rails here. Uh, It's just a little bit about the history of the blues and, and how music moved in the early part of the 20th century. Anyway, back to Rita. So she writes and records this song, and I don't remember it. And also, it's kind of a real poppy sort of thing. Yes, definitely. Well, that was her first uh, song she recorded and her first single. But in the meantime, uh, somebody very important in her life came to Memphis. More important than Booker T and the MGs and yes. Stax Records? Believe and, uh, it or not. Yes. Leon Russell. Oh, Leon. Yes. So Leon came to Memphis with Delaney the and Bonnie. With Delaney and Bonnie. Mm. And um, there's he, Delaney and Bonnie again. Uh, okay. They had been in LA. Now, Delaney and Bonnie, I know you have recently discovered oh, them, yeah. but loved I loved them as a teenager. Yes, and I know. They Lucky were girl. super, super that. Cooler than me. Cooler than you. I, well, then. Never. Then. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe a little. Okay. So, anyway. They were working on a record and he came to Memphis with them to record their first album on Stax. And their first album was called Home. And I just, as a sideline, people need to go find this album and listen to Bonnie Bramlett sing Peace of My Heart. It is incredible. Yeah, and the well-known re- song that yeah, uh, Janice re- that's uh, right. sang. All right, right. She recorded it, but Bonnie recorded it first on Stax. And I remember somebody 
commenting on her recording, which is like, Bonnie sounds angry when she sings the song and Janice sounds sad and just devastated. So that is a little bit different Ah. kind of... uh, you know, interpretation, yeah. I think. Yeah. And uh, yeah. maybe that's why the Janice version was a big hit and yes. uh, the Bonnie <laughs> version wasn't. But so. I love Bonnie's version. Oh, well, yes. anything that those guys do is so great. So Rita met Bonnie Bramlett and Delaney Bramlett and Leon, Leon Russell. Russell. And she said she hadn't heard white people singing like <laughs> any of them before. <laughs> I mean, they uh, were I, yeah, kick-ass. That is a kick-ass band. Yes. Yeah. And they they influenced so many so many different artists. Though they had a very short kind of uh, popularity and career. Yeah, quite uh, tumultuous uh, is uh, some of the uh, stories that I've read now uh, yes. about those guys. So, so all they, right. Yeah. They, and then she joined them as a background singer because yeah, she, I, I knew she was. You know, I had read that she is. A, that's where she kind of came from was was a background singer for those guys although it sounds like she recorded a single first and then ended up being in the background again yeah well the funny thing is she recorded the single they came to memphis they loved her singing they convinced her to go to la with them and by the time she got to la that song was number one only in la i mean she was like lighting turn around and love you yes She was lighting up in L.A. And of course, that opened a lot of doors for her because she arrived in L.A. and there her single is big and she got to appear on TV shows. Wow. You would think that that would turn her into a big star at that point. It doesn't seem to have. No. 1970? No. No. It's not until the later 70s she became a big star. So she and Leon actually had a relationship and, you know, they came out together to L.A. in his 56 T-Bird conversion. In yeah. 1968. Okay. <laughs> and she says even then she realized Mr. that he was eccentric. Yes, yeah. he was very odd. Oh, and he never got yeah. out of the car because they were driving across the South and he was paranoid about looking like a hippie. But, you know, so she actually had to get out of the car and check into motels because he wouldn't get out of the car until it was time to go into the room and all that. And when she got to LA, um, like I said, her single was exploding and uh, she lived with Leon in a big, in a house in LA and they had all the musicians over. I think he wrote a song for her. He did. He, well, he wrote it's... at least a couple. He yeah. wrote a song for you. Yeah. <laughs> and he wrote Delta Lady. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, let's play a little of uh, Delta Lady from Leon Russell. Now I believe she's singing background on this song, right? Undoubtedly. Cool. <laughs> Kick-ass song, but my problem always with Leon Russell is I've never been able to understand a single word that guy says. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> you know, I mean, between him and Dr. John. Now, Dr. John, I understand most of what's going on Every here, other but, word. You know, it, it, it makes me pine for time in Louisiana. Or Louisiana, I should say. Norms. <laughs> but, uh, man, that is that is a cool song. Very cool. All right. So, uh, Leon, Delaney and Bonnie, Rita, they're all, I guess they're probably living in Laurel Canyon, I would assume, at this point, mm. uh, in L.A. Yeah. I Just don't... go with it. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, if it yeah, if it sure. Laurel, Laurel Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they all lived. Yeah. Or Hollywood. So then what goes on? Well, eventually Delaney and Bonnie have a band, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. Yeah. And they have Jim Keltner, Jim Gordon, drummers, uh two incredible drummers, Carl (laughs) Radel on bass and Bobby Whitlock on piano. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Bobby they, Keys on uh, sax, right? I Yeah, I believe he was there at that time. I'm not sure when he entered the picture. Yeah. But they went on tour. Famous from the Rolling Stones. Uh, That's yeah, right. Keith's big and buddy. And he, he passed away recently, Yeah, I think. a couple of years ago. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends went on tour to open up for Blind Faith. And that's how they met Eric Clapton. So that was in 1969. Eric Clapton, of course, with Blind Faith, with Stevie Winwood. Uh-huh. And she says that the band, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends band, was so tight that they upstaged Blind Faith, who weren't getting along. I don't know if they ever did get along, but they weren't getting along at the time. Well, I know that Clapton would come out and play with them almost every night oh, on that's the tour. Oh, really- So he he was definitely infatuated with the band. He loved Delaney and Bonnie. He was getting into kind of Southern. Well, of course, he was into the blues already. Mm -hmm. And he thought he saw Delaney and Bonnie and a couple of the band members were all from the South. And so that was kind of like a bona fide (laughs) Southern. (laughs) Exotic for the Englishman. (laughs) For him. And he was really influenced by Delaney. Delaney was the band leader. He wanted to do whatever Delaney did. He didn't want to be God anymore. He wanted to play in a band and sing. And Delaney was actually one person who encouraged Eric to to go solo and to sing his own songs and write and sing his own songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Eric decided, let's see, he left Blind Faith to record his first solo album, which was called Eric Clapton in 1969. And he, he asked Delaney and oh, Bonnie. Oh, wait, before we get past Delaney, and Bonnie, we got to play a little something for the folks here. Oh, yeah. So how about we play, I don't know, what do you want to play? Well, I, you know, when, like I said, when I was a teenager and I loved them, Bonnie Bramlett was my singing idol. And I she, see that. because that's a, that's she's a good, just, uh, good one to go man, with. Man, a blues shouter singer. A little tiny thing too. Yeah, a little teeny tiny blonde. And one of her best my favorite song that I remember from that album, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends on tour with Eric Clapton, is That's What My Man Is For. And that's what we shall play.
Wow, that's awesome. Love more and more Delaney and Pawnee. I hope everybody got a chance to get into that. And please go download it, buy it. These are great and important tracks. All right, so Clapton, uh, Blind Faith, of course, implodes. No, that didn't last very long as it was. And uh, he goes solo. Um, and you're saying that uh, that uh, Delaney had a lot to do with uh, pushing him into that. That's right. And uh, they actually went on a tour, just um, not fronting Blind Faith, but uh, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends on tour with Eric Clapton. And um, he he brought the oh, whole... Yeah. Oh, George Harrison. I've seen a video of of, uh, of him and George Harrison and Delaney and Bonnie. Yeah, George, George actually was a huge Delaney and Bonnie fan. I think we, did, we talked about that in the um, Patty Boyd book. Yeah. He actually turned Eric on to them, to them. and I oh, guess that's okay. why he chose them to open for him. Mm-hmm. And then they all went on tour together, not with blind faith. That he brought the whole band plus Rita over to England to stay with him while he was recording, you know, his his, his first album. album. Yeah, yeah. And then they all went on tour. So he had two thing those two things going on at the same time. Um and actually Delaney was the one who introduced Eric to JJ Kale. Eric has covered many, many J.J. Kale songs since then. In fact, they did an album together. But the first one that Eric covered was After Midnight. Yeah, Uh, J.J. Kale's 1966 song. But let's face it, the definitive version is from, I believe, 1970, 71. uh, And that is After Midnight. Great. Can I sing backup vocals? Just like Rita. You bet. That's right. All Um, right. Well, actually, the interesting thing about that song is she talks about uh, being a backup singer on that song and that they used gospel techniques to do the backup vocals. There were only three singers singing backup vocals, but what they did was they... So they her traded. and her and Bonnie and uh, probably Delaney, but maybe Bobby uh, Whitlock. He was okay. quite a good singer. Yeah, I don't know exactly which singers they were. So they all had their parts while they were singing the backup vocals, and then they would all trade parts and sing the other person's part, and then they would do it again. And that's called stacking the yeah, vocals. Yeah, yeah, that's a common technique. Huh? Yeah, and it and it, and also the other thing was when Delaney arranged the song, he put the backup vocals farther forward in the mix than usually is done, which is is a very gospel kind of thing to do. When you think of a church choir and how they sing, and then the, the soloist steps out and sings the solo and then steps back again, that's kind of the idea behind this oh, song. Yeah. 
Worked yep. great. Worked fantastic. No, all it was right, thrilling. Okay, so uh, so now she's working with uh, with Clapton through uh, Delaney and Bonnie, and where do we go from here? We go to a little bit more about Eric Clapton because when uh, she was staying with Eric in England at their house, she staying, saw. What does that mean? At Hurtwood's Edge. So oh, they, were the her, whole band, and, were the her whole band. and Eric together? Or? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, all right. The whole <laughs> band went over and stayed in his house. And so she got to kind of live with him and see his his thing. And as we talked about in Patty in Boyd's, Patty Boyd's book, mm-hmm. he definitely, you know, had a heavy heroin habit and was drinking a lot. But he could kind of play the shit out of anything, even when he was, you know, stoned. Mm-hmm. She, you know, hung out with George. She hung out with uh, Patty and she heard Patty's kind of story about Eric being in love with her and her being in love with Eric and George was a womanizer and that kind of thing. And and Rita actually is not fond of Eric Clapton, I can tell from the book. And she thought George was a total sweetheart and gentleman and couldn't really kind of buy into Patty's story Wait, about what was happening. a little bit different from what we heard from the Patty book. Definitely. Though, oh. I would say as a woman, just because a <laughs> man doesn't hit on you doesn't mean he's not sleeping with somebody else. I mean, maybe he just wasn't interested in Rita. But you there's know? A, a little bit of uh, liturgical uh, catfight going on here. Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. Mm. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the things we uncover at the yes. Rock and Roll Archaeology <laughs> Project. <laughs> so there is a there is a controversy here. Oh, there's always a controversy. Yes, it's rock con- and roll, man. The can't controversy be, can't have is a, a book without a controversy. So Eric records his first solo album. He salacious. goes on tour with Delaney and Bonnie, and they put out an album. and And within months, he's back in the studio recording the whole Layla two album set with with Derek and the Dominoes, which the Dominoes... Wait a, wait a minute. We played Layla with Patty Boyd. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So Layla comes back again. Wow. These yeah. two are really at it here. That's right. Layla, so she Layla's has something to be, do with Layla too? She, she says she does. And in fact, this story hadn't actually been told until she wrote it in this book that she and Jim Gordon, who was the drummer for Delaney and Bonnie and for Derek, oh, Derek and, and the, the Dominoes, Dominoes. Oh, yeah, definitely. A, a, you know, totally, you know, inspired drummer. She had met him in L.A. when they were all hanging out and they were boyfriend and girlfriend. And he so they were all in England together and he and she were playing something on the piano and they came up with this melody. Then they she wrote a song around. So she wrote lyrics to it and she gave the demo to Eric. And later when she was back in the States, she heard Layla come on the radio and heard the coda part, you know, the piano, the piano. part yeah. mm-hmm. at the very end of the song that starts about halfway through but sure yeah she changes the whole field so exactly the same melody as the song that she wrote which actually is called time don't let the world get in our way and her sister priscilla her sister priscilla and booker t jones recorded that song and then later she heard layla and realized that was the same song that she had written that the lyrics had been stripped away and added to the end of Eric Clapton's song. Well, I guess we're just going to have to play a little of Layla again, but what we'll do is we'll play 
the piano coda. Start at the back. Okay. feel about Layla. That's such a fantastic song. Yeah. And um, she she actually went to people right at that time and said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I wrote part of this song. And Eric's manager said, you know, who do you think you yeah, are? You're just luck. a girl singer. Oh. What are you going to do? So Good times. But, Good uh, times. She, she did have that story confirmed by Bobby Whitlock, who was the keyboard player with Eric Clapton, who validated her story that she you know that she that he had heard heard jim and and her working on it right working on it and uh even though he doesn't think it it sounds good at the end of layla it's funny (laughs) he says it sucks it's not rock and roll uh, I don't know. That's uh, that's quite the classic song to be complaining <laughs> yes, about. Yes, he's, so. he's quite outspoken, I think. All right. <laughs> so uh, where do we go from here? Well, it's all crammed into this, a similar time period, but um, she met Joe Cocker because Joe was working on an album and she did backup vocals on his album. And Leon Russell was the... Now she's was, really putting in her dues. She definitely is. She has played with a lot of people. So Joe Cocker was just riding on the crest of being very famous for doing uh, try uh, with a little help from my friends at Woodstock. Yeah. Okay. And, 1969. And his management wrote him into this kind of uh, got him... A tour. A tour. Anyway, they went. Uh, so he he was kind of forced into going on a tour, which was called Mad Dogs and Englishmen, which was a very That's famous, a very famous tour. tour. Yeah. Yes, and it was actually um, filmed. Mm-hmm. So you can hear the album of the tour, and you can watch the movie of the tour. But basically, that was on in YouTube, 1970, and it was uh, basically a rock and roll circus. And they quickly, like within two weeks, had to gather together a huge band. They did 48 concerts in seven weeks. Wow! And yeah, she said they had one week to assemble the band. Leon Russell was the musical director. And oh no. Basically, all of the band, all of Delaney and Bonnie's band, except Delaney and Bonnie, went on this tour. Oh, well, at least that was pretty tight. Yeah, it was tight, except for it didn't have Delaney, you know, kind uh, of directing. Yeah. And what basically she says that while Delaney and Bonnie and Friends was a tight, tight band and they could basically do anything this mad dogs group even though it had a lot of the same people was just a kind of wild and crazy disparate kind of uh group of people and it was very high tension and joe was a very sensitive artist and she quickly became very good friends with him and he relied on her to give him some you know kind of grounding while they were on this tour there was cocaine all over the place there was a lot of anxiety paranoia and after the tour they went into the studio to make the album and so many people had jumped up on stage to sing backup vocals that she had to like strip the backup vocals out and bring singers in to 
do them again oh, and uh, dub in them the studio. Yeah. 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 yeah that's um, been done many times. Yeah. So she was actually at that time, and I want to make sure to say this, she was very well respected as a backup vocalist and she knew a lot of other backup vocalists. So she she was given the job to to assemble the choir for the backup um, vocals on the tour. And she was given a lot of, um, she was kind of like the main LA backup vocal go-to girl at that time. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they were on this tour and this is kind of important because I don't know how many people have heard of Jim Gordon, but like I said, he was a very well-respected session drummer. He was played with all of these people and they were uh, together and they were on this tour and and they were, and they were hanging out in the motel room, kind of all like playing and singing together. And he leaned over to her and said, you know, can I talk to you for a minute? And they went out in the hall and she thought that he was going to ask her to marry him. And instead, Uh he cocked his fist back and hit her in the eye so hard that she was briefly knocked unconscious. I lifted off the floor and slammed against the wall on the other side of the hallway. And then he walked back into the room and acted like nothing had happened. So um, (sighs) later on, he was diagnosed as a schizophrenic. And he he's uh, in jail. I, he I murdered remember, his right? mother. Oh, so she was really okay. good to be out of that one alive. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> so she had to go, you know, on with the rest of the tour with him still there. Ugh. But the rest of the band, basically, they didn't want to upset the tour. So they didn't call the police, but they formed kind of a protective oh, wall around good. her so that she could continue on with the show. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So now I think she had a song that she got to solo with during that tour. Yes, she did. Um, it was a, another controversial song, actually, a song called Superstar. Which, oh, by the Carpenters. Um, yeah, the Carpenters made that quite famous. But um, her story is that she and Bonnie, when they were on tour with Eric, they, she had this idea. Oh, all those girls in the audience are looking at Eric and thinking, he's going to pick me. He's going to come and take me home tonight. And then when the tour is over, he's going to come back and we're going to be together. So, Oh, yes. She that is and, a well-oiled rock and roll story. That's right. And did it ever happen? I'm not sure. Though Tom Petty did marry a fan. Okay, then it did happen. Yes. So... She had this idea for the song called Superstar, and Bonnie and she wrote the lyrics. And Rita, she, Rita and Bonnie wrote yes. Superstar. And she says that they wrote it, and Leon and Delaney came in and listened to it and kind of finished it up, whatever that means. And um, she sang it as her solo spot on the Mad Dogs tour. Then Bonnie recorded it, and then it came out as a B-side to the Delaney and Bonnie single, but Rita's name wasn't on it. And oh. she she felt that since Bonnie and her were really good friends, that Delaney must have had something to do with that. Well, we'll never know. But hey, I don't want to play the Carpenters version. I want to play Rita singing it, and I know it's on the Mad Dogs and Englishmen album, so we're going to shoot on that. Yep. I'm going to introduce you to uh, young Delta lady. Uh, Rita Coolidge. Long ago And so far away 
It's a it's a great song. Um, you, you can't deny that. And it, this to me is a way better version than the the Carpenters. Well, you should hear Bonnie Bramlett's version. That is super. But Rita's is good too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Where are we going now? So she's still, even though she has had some solo kind of uh, career, she's still basically a backup singer, mm-hmm. and which is a good thing to be. And she went into the... <laughs> Unless you want right. to be a star, but sure. <laughs> she went into the studio to um, sing backup vocals on a famous song with a famous group. It's called Love the One You're With. And that's by who? Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> well, hell, that, I don't think we can get a better introduction than that. So there we go. Love the one you're with. I'm going to play the end of it where I think you can really pick her out. So listen close. Wow, now that is a great song. Everybody loves that. Definitive version and all. Those backup vocals are so, I mean, they just still send a thrill down my back. Yeah, I I hope everybody could pick them out. There's a lot going on in that song at the end there. Well, she described how they recorded that song. Um, They had two mics and they all stood around in a circle around the mics. And and who was all of them? They were uh, Cass Elliott. Mm-hmm. Priscilla, her sister, Graham Nash, John, Sebastian, and uh, I think Stephen Stills also was on the background vocals. Mm-hmm. And Mr. they did Many a real hands. gospel, right. you know, it was a real gospel sounding. She said it was a really, really fun time doing the backup vocals. They're dancing and looking at each other and laughing and just yeah. having a great time. It sounds like it. Yeah. And that's where there's she There's a met, lot of joy in the song. That's where she met Graham Nash. Mm. And he was interested in her, but Stephen manipulated the situation. And when Graham said, oh, call me tomorrow and I'll take you to the concert. I'm staying at Stephen's house. And then Stephen answered the phone and lied and said Graham couldn't make it and started. And so Rita started seeing Stephen, but she was never really that interested in him. And then she explained the misunderstanding (laughs) to Graham and Uh, they started seeing each other. This sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) so anyway, she and Graham finally got together, but Stephen was very angry about it oh 
he he wrote clocked, a song for her. I he think. did. He wrote a song called Cherokee <laughs> yeah, for her. Yeah. But she doesn't think he was really actually in love with her. That he just kind of you know wanted her somehow. So I think there was. I think the reason she's telling this story is because there was a this this story going around that Rita Coolidge broke up. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and she said, "Oh nah, no, no, there are already tensions in the band." And yeah, that was a very ego-driven band. There's uh, lots of fun stories about to, yeah. uh, those guys, and uh, you know how they would act to one another uh, behind the stage and uh, come out and do their show, and you know the the separate limos, the separate dressing rooms, the passing of notes because people would talk to each other on uh, and on and on. So uh, that's a well-known uh, story. I I don't think I would call her the uh, the reason or the fulcrum of uh, of their demise. I can't imagine. And it was only was temporary. True. They've come back a right. ton of times. So. Right. So they were, she and Graham were together for a little bit more than a year and she has great respect for him. And, you know, he treated her real nicely, like she was a fellow musician. He, you know, asked her advice on music and and that kind of thing. So she really still loves and respects him, but they just were leading different lives. She went on tour and he moved to San Francisco. And in the, in the meantime, she went on an airplane from L.A. back to Tennessee, and she met somebody who was really sounds like the love of her life. His name was Chris Christopherson. Oh, oh and, I know who that is. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about Chris Christopherson, I'm going to play his most famous song. One, two, three, four. Busted flat and Baton Rouge Heading for the trains Feeling nearly faded as my jeans Bobby thumbed a diesel down Just before it rained Took us all away to New Orleans I took my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana and was blowing sad while Bobby sang the blues. Okay. Uh, now, me and Bobby McGee, of course, the famous version from uh, Janis Joplin. Uh, I think that's what set his career on fire, if I remember right. All right, so back to them meeting. Yes. So, yeah, she met Chris actually just after Janice Joplin died and me and Bobby McGee came out just after she died. And so he was really kind of a hot ticket. But like she said, he radiated outlaw. He was a part of the outlaw (laughs) country kind of. Cotillion, yeah. like the good stuff. Willie and yep. Waylon. Waylon and yeah. Willie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That whole all country era. But they had <laughs> such an instant connection on the airplane that they were flying to Tennessee and he was supposed to get off at Nashville. But he just said, no, I'm not getting off. I'm going I'm going to Memphis with her. Oh. <laughs> and that was it. They were together after that. They joined their bands together. They went on tour. They did albums together. And she was influenced by him and his style by deciding really at that point not to really continue in rock and roll. Uh, she wanted to do more kind of sentimental and move people's hearts is what she said. That was something that she got from Chris. You know, he wasn't a really great singer, but he he really connected songwriter. with people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had a, yeah, you know. Yeah, nobody has anything bad to say about Christopherson. Well, she has a, a couple bad things to say about oh, him. but okay, so I'm wrong. <laughs> they had a great, you know, really chemical relationship, but they had a lot of good times, chemical bad as times. Chemical chemistry, yes. not outside chemical. chemicals. Okay. Yes, that was the wrong word. <laughs> they were together for eight years. They had a little girl and they just had too many. I mean, he was He was an blown alcoholic. up at this time. Yeah. I and mean, he, he was in uh, Stars Born and, and, and all of that uh, at this point, I would assume. Yeah. I think one of the things that happened with them was he was a movie star. He did like four movies in three years. And then she was just actually starting her solo career and singing a lot with him. And so she was on tour. And so there were a lot of things kind of working not in their favor. They did marry. uh, She got pregnant. They moved to Malibu, where her family all actually moved out from Tennessee to Malibu. What a culture shock that must have been wait a minute i thought they moved to la in the early 70s yeah they did i mean but eventually they all settled together in malibu in malibu oh yeah and so he was he was just you know outlaw was his kind of his thing he was he drank a lot he went on tour he was on movie sets he couldn't stay faithful one of the kind of main kind of breaks in their relationship came when after the baby was born they went to cornwall to film the sailor who fell to earth and then he did a playboy shoot with the star of that the movie sailor sarah who, miles wait a minute, the sailor who fell from earth oh wait a minute I got that wrong. Yeah, I, th- I think you're mixing up the Bowie. No, no, the sailor, <laughs> the sailor who fell from grace. What's the name of that damn movie? Anyway. Yeah, uh, nobody <laughs> remembers it. <laughs> But anyway, I think he was in Heaven's Gate, too. Some people might want to check out the Playboy shoot with Sarah Miles, because apparently there were some incredibly racy photos in there of him going down on Sarah. And, I certainly um, will not be doing that. No, not not nor I. But. <laughs> She found out, you know, she saw the magazine when it came out and it just killed her. Anyway, they did have, you know, as you said, uh, quite the uh, the chemistry. Yes. And I think that's obvious when they would tour together. Yes. uh, I think they have a song that we could probably put that uh, people might be able to pick up on that. I think think so, too. And as she says, their powerful love just went right up the microphone and onto the records. And one of the videos that I think, or the, the recordings that I think that really shows this is Help Me Make It Through the Night. That was their signature number. Let's play it. That ribbon from your hair Shake it loose Let it fall Laying soft Against my skin Like the shadows On the wall Help me make 
uh, probably not well. Although uh, they're still, they got to be still friends. I don't hear that uh, that there's animosity in that uh, relationship. No, she is obviously quite fond of him, and you know, as things go, it just didn't God, work out. Can you out. believe he's eighty years old? Wow, really? I know. And she's in her 70s. She's 71, yeah. But he's 80 years old. Chris Christopherson's 80 years old. It just blows my mind. Anyway, finally, she she decided to leave him. They had just one thing too many uh, with other women. And uh, just as she was leaving him, her album, Anytime, Anywhere, hit number six, went platinum oh, in 1977. 1977. Yeah. And uh, one of her most famous songs, Higher and Higher, was on that album. So she had something to kind of move her through the divorce and the breakup and everything. Oh, uh, Jackie Wilson, your love has lifted me higher and higher. That's right. Let's play your that. Is lifting me Here's my thought is that she seems to have gone full circle back to the feel and sound of that original single that brought her to L.A. Right. It just kind of has that poppy, sweet, saccharine sort of feel to it. Uh, it's a good song. Um, right. uh, well, of course, it's a Jackie Wilson song, but uh, she puts a neat pop spin on it. I could see why it was a huge hit in 1977, yeah. right at the disco era and all that. I think when she became, you know, went solo, I never was real interested in her. Uh, that's what's so interesting about doing this It's a podcast. weird thing. She kind of has these two very distinct voices, this sort of poppy thing in her solo career, but very soulful vocals in her background. Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting, very insightful comment because observation observation that's it yeah she does she's kind of got a, a a wide variety of styles two very distinct ones one kind of the bluesy soulful singer and the other uh you know that poppy kind of uh, well obviously with this last song uh, higher and higher a little bit disco uh, queen here that's right Actually, like I said, I really like her voice. Uh, I wasn't ever really turned on by a lot of her recordings because they were a little too tame. Syrupy and sugar. Yeah, but she really, she has this huge potential and she can do whatever she wants with her voice. And I've I've heard her, you know, break out a little bit, you know, really admire. Yeah, she's a singer singer. Yeah. And, you know, what else is really refreshing about her is with all, you know, the current female vocalists who are just doing gymnastics all over the place. Yes, vocal she, gymnastics. That's, yeah, that's she what I really, call them. Uh, you know, she chooses exactly what she wants to do. She know, you know, she has a great command over her voice and she uses it for whatever she needs to use it for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, let's get let's get to the end of this. So, well, first of all, what do you think of the book? 
it was fun to read. You know, like I said, I wasn't so much into Rita Coolidge, but I knew that she had written about Delaney and Bonnie, so I had to read the book. (laughs) And then, of course, I was totally caught up. And, you know, she writes with her co-writer, you know, very engagingly. And it's a quick read, and it has a lot of content in there that's, I think, interesting to rock and roll fans. Well, I also like the fact that it kind of overlapped a little bit of what we talked about with Patty Boyd's book. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we got a different perspective here. That's uh, some good archaeology there, uh, Shelley. Thank you. I was an anthropology major in college. Uh, It's coming out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I I, want to leave on a high note here. Okay. Uh, Not higher and higher note, but just a high note. (laughs) Yeah. What do you got for me? Well, I got, you know, her wrapping up the book with her having good relationships with Chris and Graham and Leon and she getting uh, together last year to do a tribute to Joe Cocker, who died in 2014 at a festival in Virginia. You know, she and Leon are not friends, but she's very Actually, grateful to him. Actually, I think they him. did that with the Tedeschi Trucks band. If oh, I yeah, right. it was yeah. really, I saw a little bit of it on YouTube. It was yeah. really good, really good. They're great, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she, she lives in California. She's remarried, finally. She doesn't talk about that. But one song that she sings at that last festival is Bird on the Wire, which is a song that Joe Cocker also covered and sang on the Mad Dogs tour. So I think that would be a really great closing for the podcast. I think that's an excellent choice because this is that other side of her. This is the more soulful, real, emotional, grasping vocal that uh, she's certainly capable of. Yes, it's beautiful. Great. So let's end on Bird on a Wire. Like a bird on wire, like a drum in a midnight choir. I have tried in my own way. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to The Rock and Roll Librarian. Make sure you go out and get Rita's book, her new memoir. (laughs) And we'll talk to you next, next month. Uh, We will definitely be on next month. Do you have something in mind? Yes. Reading the a book called Trouble Boys, which is a book about the replacements. Excellent. Oh, that's going to be so much fun. All right, folks, keep up the rocking. Woohoo. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help.
The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Kristen Swain. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.